shining afar through shadows thin.
precious name. I wanted to thank each one of you for praying this week as I studied and uh, looked into his word. We're going to continue looking at the family. We're going to move into uh, the Christian marriage. And I entitled the sermon, The Great Mystery. And I entitled that, and I'm not sure I fully answer what the great mystery is, but um, I might attempt to outside of what my notes say. So turn with me to Ephesians 5, 31. And sometimes what Paul calls a great mystery is no longer a great mystery to us, if that makes any sense. So as they transitioned from the Old Testament to the New Testament, there was things the Jews were looking at, and they're like, this doesn't, this is, this is wild stuff. And to us, we've, we've been in the New Testament church for so long, it's like, well, this is how it's supposed to be. But um, part of that great mystery is just the relationship between Christ and the church. Uh, to many people, that was a great mystery. So Ephesians 5.31 says this, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So, like I said, some of this mystery has already been revealed to us. The union of Christ and his church and the way God would have it exemplified in our marriage, I think, is another aspect of it. When you got married, especially young people, was that one of your thoughts, is that we're going to be married, and our marriage is going to exemplify the relation between Christ and his church? Was that something you were thinking about on your wedding day? That was not one of my thoughts on my wedding day, and, and maybe it should have been. Um, but... When you think about it, uh, as two Christian young people joining into a marriage relationship, and then your, our relationship now is going to be exemplary of Christ's relationship with the church. And Ephesians 3, 7, this was no surprise to God. Uh, Ephesians 3, 7 to 12, it says... Wherefore, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power unto me who am less than the least of all the saints and this is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And I think that was another mystery to the Jews was that the Gentiles had been accepted into the body of Christ. Uh, this was a mystery that Paul was slowly revealing to him and to make and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hidden God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord." in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by faith, by the faith of him. So God, from the very beginning of the world, was already looking forward to the time where Christ would die for the church and the sins of the whole world and the sins of the world past of the Old Testament. So God, in his knowledge, in his foreknowledge, he knew this, and Christ gave himself for the church. Why? And we'll read about it in Ephesians. I don't even know if we get to those verses, but it says that he might sanctify it and cleanse it 
by the washing of by the washing by the word that he may present it to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that it should be holy and without blemish so as i read that i thought if christ were to return for the bride today and what you know of mcdowell church and what you know of yourself would christ find what he was hoping to find when he returned for his bride. Would he find a bride that was without spot? Would he find a, a glorious bride without wrinkle and sanctified and holy? Is that what he would find? Revelations 22:10 to 14 says this, And he saith unto me, Seal not these sayings of the prophecy in this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. There's a time when we're not going to be able to get ready for the wedding anymore. So we've, we've heard about that. There's coming a time. And that's when I got the thing is, we like the idea of instant sanctification. And we don't like the idea as much as ongoing sanctification. It's ongoing sanctification is where the rubber meets the road and where my life continues to be hidden in Christ. And it's an active process. And this thing is that when Christ begins to change a person, it is a process. But when you're out witnessing to your community friends and you present the gospel of Jesus to them, are they right away like, I'm on board, I want Jesus in my life? I have a person has, there's a time where they're thinking, well, I want some evidence, I want some proof, I want, they're, they're looking, they're considering this whole thing. There's a process of time. And as we go through life, time is running out as we know it. So we're, we're limited in time. If Christ would return for his bride, what would he see in my life? If I know that there's spot or wrinkle or blemish or sin, <laughs> just call it what it is, if I know it, why am I not doing something about it? Oh, because he, he gave us everything that we need to be ready for his return. It was like we had a disease and he presented the cure, but so often we don't accept the medicine. The, the idea of living above sin is to many a distant dream. Um, if, you, if you talk to someone that's in the depths of sin, to, to live free of sin is, is way off. They can't even fathom it to some people. And to live in sin is to live without power. And so it's, it's a vicious cycle where how do I have the power to overcome sin when I have sin in my life? And, okay, so that's the, the background I was thinking of Christ in the church, and he's coming for a spotless bride. Let's get into 
this marriage thing. When we're contemplating marriage, that is why we tell our young people, because it's such an important thing to marry someone of like precious faith, to marry someone that is, um, has the same goals in mind as you do, that has the, the same relationship with God as you do. Because this is going to affect the rest of your life, and you're going to be exemplary of the kingdom of God. Now, I know couples uh, back in Alberta that quit going to church at all because their religious views differed. And so the husband said, well, I'm not going to your church. And the wife said, well, I'm not going to your church. So they quit going to church. Um, and I, I know that even within our own culture, there's been some struggles with, with church things. It's an, this is an important thing. So let's start with Ephesians 5.22. I know, ladies, you pro this isn't probably your favorite verse in the Bible. But Ephesians 5.22, it says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Now, when you think of submitting unto the Lord, do you think of submitting like partially, half-heartedly? Or when you think of submitting as unto the Lord, do you think of it as entirely unto the Lord? And, and this, is a, this is a man and woman question. If you think of submitting to Christ, are you doing it halfway or are you doing it the whole way? We, we probably would say, well, I submit the whole way to Christ. But then we need to live it like we've submitted the whole way to Christ. Another way of saying it, Paul could have said, I want you to submit to your husband now as you have been submitting to Christ. Okay, fair enough. And 1 Corinthians 7.32, um, it talks about this. It says, But I would have you without carefulness. He that is unmarried careth for the things that belongeth to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he that is married careth for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference also between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman careth for the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But she that is married careth for the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I speak for your own profit, not that I may cast a snare upon you, but for that which is comely, that ye may attend upon the Lord without distraction. A married person has a certain amount of distraction in their life. And it's a good thing. It's a blessing. But as a married man, I try to please my husband. And she tries to please me. <laughs> but I try to please my wife. There we go. I was like, whoa, what is he preaching? Okay. Well, as a married man, I do try to please my wife and vice versa. And I would say continue to date your spouse. You know, sometimes that's difficult. Uh, where was the man that was showing up with flowers? Well, maybe I buy a little more permanent flowers. Where was the man that was writing me letters? I get that. I don't write letters anymore. It's like, I can talk to you this evening, you know. Um, you still want a letter? But she likes letters, so. Continue to date your wife. They're, your wife, you know, our wives like different things. Now, if you jump down two verses, Ephesians 5, 24, it says, Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let wives be unto their own husbands in everything. Now, are there exceptions to this? Yes. <laughs> there are. I think there are some, some exceptions. 
um, if your husband does not want you to submit to Christ, then that's an exception. Uh, Christ is your, as a believer in God, Christ is your all in all. Um, so if he's saying, well, I don't want you to be a Christian, that's not something we're necessarily submitting to. But why is it when you tell a lady that she needs to submit to her husband, the question does arise, well, is there exceptions? What I want to suggest to you is don't look for exceptions because you'll find exceptions where they don't exist. Uh, if, if, yeah, that's hard to say. But I'll tell you another secret that's probably not a secret. The, the authority of a man is only as good as the submission of the wife. Because my wife is not my child. And I don't punish my wife when she doesn't submit to me. You know, the, the, I don't find something in scripture that says, you know, give your wife a time out when she's not submitting. I've, I've heard of crazy stuff, but the, the authority of the man is only as good as the submission of the wife. And if you think about it in the church, the authority of Christ is only as good as our submission to Christ. Now, there is some consequences when we're not submitting to Christ. Um, but by far and away, the consequences will be down the road and not immediate. Now, I could look at all the examples of bad marriages, but this morning I wanted to look at the example of an ideal marriage or a good marriage. And while I'm aware there's unhealthy marriages, you know, that's not my focus. Um, I would say to those that are un in unhealthy relationships, don't look for exceptions other than if it violates what Christ has told you to do. Now, verse 23 is equally as important as verse 22 and 24. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Now, Christ is the savior of the church, is man's savior of the family. In essence, the man is the spiritual leader of the family. Uh, you can't save your family, but you can present an environment that's, that's ideal for your family. Our actions are to be a reflection of Christ. And far too often, our wives have to push us as men to be spiritual leaders. Have you ever had that where your wife's like nudging you and maybe she's dropping little hints like, honey, I think it'd be good if uh, maybe we'd pray after devotions. And uh, honey, I think it'd maybe be good if maybe we should do a little singing as a family every now and again. And, and you start thinking, you're like, my wife is full of good ideas. And where am I? Is, is the question. It, why, why isn't it the man, why isn't it me coming up with good ideas for the family and saying, okay, here's what we're going to do to make a better path forward for our children spiritually. I come up with other good ideas. I might take them hunting, might do this or that. But are we leading out in a spiritual role as we should? With leadership also comes accountability. And one thing I've noticed is that you can tell a man he's a leader and he's happy even if you take away his authority. Just tell him he's in charge. Like there's, there's a joke, I'm the boss, my wife said I could be. But 
in some marriages, that's a lot more true than a joke. And, but the, the man's happy because he doesn't have all the responsibility, but someone told him he's in charge. Uh, that's a pretty good gig, but it's not biblical. It, it's not the way that God designed it to be. The reality is, as when, as when us as men have authority, that authority brings a large amount of responsibility and accountability. We're going to give an account to the direction we're leading our family. And another thing about authority, if authority is something that you crave, I don't think you understand authority. Does that make sense? There's some people that crave authority, and I don't think they understand what authority actually means or what God would have it to be. Now, we just studied um, in our Sunday school class that Jesus, when he started his ministry, the first thing he went to was a wedding. So that was special. He, he went to a wedding. The very first miracle was performed at a wedding. What did he do right after the wedding? I think he went to the temple and he started cleaning things out. If we want to lead as men, we need to do some of our own cleaning. It starts with our heart. It starts with cleaning out our own lives so that we can lead our family in the way that God would have us to lead. And so we need to start right here in our hearts and, and clean out all the sin, all the, the things that are in there so that we can lead as God would have us to lead. Leaders in the home become leaders in the church. And God has called us as men to protect the bride of Christ. And so that's why our homes are so important, because our homes are what make up the church, right? Without you here, it wouldn't be a church, but all our homes together make up the church. So if we're protecting what comes into our homes, we're also protecting what comes into the church. And I've talked to men that will say, I might be getting ahead of myself in the notes, but if someone would come into my house to hurt my wife and my children, they would have to meet with me first. I think all of us men would say, well, we'll be the first ones at the door if someone's coming to hurt our family, right? Where are we when Satan attacks our wife and children? Are we the first to meet him at the door? Or has he already tied us up and the door's wide open? That was a serious question when I looked at that. Am I protecting my family at the door or have I already given in to the tricks of the devil and he has free access to my wife and my children? Because the reality is the devil will attack you way more times than any man or robber or whatever is going to come into your house. They're, the onslaughts of the devil might even be weekly, but they're several times a year, very least. So how many times have you been robbed? Or how many times have you had to directly protect your wife physically? The Jews, when Jesus started cleaning out the temple, they had a question. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Basically, they asked him, By what authority are you cleaning out our temple? Why are you here cleaning out our temple? This is our place. Uh, show us a sign that says you're worthy to do this. And Jesus was the ultimate authority, 
But he has extended that authority to us as men, and we have to recognize that we're also under authority. And God, I don't fully understand all this, but God has even given authority unto men who don't recognize God as their authority. Do you, do you realize that? I mean, our, our president, there's, there's many people in this world that God has given authority, but they don't recognize God as authority. Well, what about responsibility? Let's look at a responsibility. Go with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, starting at uh, verse 7, 7 to 9. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul, and the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, so there God planted the, the garden. He put man there. He placed him to tend the garden. Now skip down to verses 16 and 17. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. From the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. When did the commandment come to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Was woman even around? Hmm. She hadn't even been created yet. So God gave man an instruction. He said, don't eat of that tree that's in the midst of the garden. And so Adam said, okay, I won't do that. Now go a little further. Genesis 3. 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more subtle than any of the beasts of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the trees, the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know, In that day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also to her husband with her and he did eat. When the snake tempted Eve, he was also tempting Adam. It says Adam was standing right there with her. And he probably thought, I, don't, I can't read the Satan's mind, but he thought, probably thought if I can get one of them to fall, I can get the other one to fall. And let's work on the lady. And I can't be certain whether God came back and said to Adam and Eve together, don't eat to that tree. I kind of thought that Adam passed that message on to his wife. God said, don't eat. And actually there was an added word. He said, God said, don't touch it either. Just leave it alone. <laughs> don't even touch it. Because he thought, if you touch it, you're pretty close to eating it at that point. So just leave it alone. That would have been the best strategy. Now, why was Adam standing there silently while the devil tempted Eve? Why wasn't he saying, why are you listening to this snake? Like, why are you listening to him? God told us not to do that. That Adam was silent this whole time. He didn't, he didn't say anything. And he just went right along with it. And maybe he had some morbid curiosity. 
So maybe thought, well, maybe God is keeping something from us. And so I'll just watch my wife. And if she doesn't keel over dead, then I'll take some. So his wife <laughs> ate some of it. He watched her. And then nothing happened to her immediately. So he took it. And then something happened. It says their eyes were both open. Okay, now let's go a little further down. When God comes to them, uh, Genesis 3, 9 to 19. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee and thou that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman that thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. And the Lord said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field, and upon thy belly thou shalt go. Dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception, and sorrow shalt bring forth, thou shalt bring forth a child, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hearkeneth unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. Thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it was thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. So in the end, I think God held them both responsible. But he came to Adam first. And he said, what have you done? And Adam said, that woman you gave me, she gave it to me. Now, me knowing men as I know men, I think Adam was delighted with his wife the whole way up until that point. Do you agree? I think he was like, I think he was really happy. I think he would have actually been a little bit upset if God hadn't given him Eve. And he'd be like, all these other animals, they have partners, I have nobody. But Adam, the instant he had to take responsibility, he wanted to pass the buck. And, and that's just, I, I guess it's human nature, but he said, that woman you gave me, she gave it to me to eat. But at the end of the day, I think Adam was responsible for just standing idly by and allowing that to take place. Are we defending our family against the attacks of the enemy? That's my question. Or do we just sit by and just see what happens? Okay, now in verse, uh, go back to Ephesians 5. For any of this to work, this needs to be there. Ephesians 5, starting at verse 25, says, Husband, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he may present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it shall be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own body. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. If the world was to look at my marriage, then read that the Christian marriage is to be a type of Christ in the church, would they get a proper representation? Men, or at least myself, I'm a pretty selfish person, and Christ has worked on that. But overall... Um, I think we tend to be a little selfish. And I think ladies tend to be less selfish than men. And especially after they've had a child or two. Um, having a child or two, you're sacrificing your body in a sense to, 
to grow another human being. So women have, God puts them through something and and they become even less selfish with time. And I know that's a generalized statement. I know there's men that are very unselfish and I know there's women that are very selfish. But generally, men tend to be a little more selfish than ladies. And when we invest, have you ever, there's a long-term investment. And when you invest in your marriage, you're actually investing in yourself. Which, you know, I've never been a proponent of self-love. Or, but I've heard of people say you have to learn to love yourself. You know how the Bible says to do it if you're married? It says love your wife. It says if you love your wife, you're basically loving yourself because it's coming back. It's a good return on investment. The more you love your wife, it's, it should be reciprocated. And even if it's not, you're doing what the Bible tells you to do. Sometimes we hear the term, well, they finally bought in. When Christ died for the church, how much did he buy in? The whole way. He gave his life for the church. When we're married, how much have we bought into that marriage? Am I willing to give my life for my wife? Have I bought into the marriage? Am I willing to sacrifice? Did Jesus ever look back and say, well, I'm not sure it was worth the pain and the suffering I put up with. No, because he knew the future and he was looking forward to the future. He's like, it's going to be worth it all that someday I'm going to call the bride of Christ and it's going to be my special bride. And he was looking forward to that day and he was willing to suffer and he was willing to go through the pain and the hard times for that end result. It'll be worth it all. You love your wife so much that you'll do whatever it takes to keep yourself pure. Do you love her enough that you'll you'll go out of her your way to make her feel special? You'll you'll do things for her. You'll keep her she's in the forefront of your mind. Keep yourself only for her. When you spoil your wife, it normally comes back to you. Um, As a selfish person, I'd be like, my feet really hurt. You know, I've been walking chickens for a long time. A foot rub would feel really good about right now. (laughs) I'm just trying to make this practical. If I, my wife has probably been on her feet longer than I had at that point. What if I would go home and give my wife a foot rub? chances are pretty good that I would get a foot rub out of the deal, (laughs) right? Uh, And not that that's the way I'm looking at it. (laughs) Now she knows my tactic. But um, no, No. but just some examples for us as men to think about when, when you express love in a marriage relationship, it often comes back and, and it's a blessing. Ephesians 5, 29, it says, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it, even as the Lord of the church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bone. Investing time, energy, and love into your wife is an awesome investment. And it's good and proper. Well, you think of it, I thought about what Christ did. Christ loved the church. He loves us. Even if you're single here, you're part of the church, you're part of the bride of Christ. He loves you. What did he do? 
He gives us grace. He gives us strength. He gives us mercy. He gives us all these things that we can do what he wanted us to do. He's invested into the church, but it's eventually for his benefit, which is hard to comprehend because how can measly men benefit God? But that's the way he wanted it. Maybe that's part of the mystery. Well, I hope we have good marriages this morning, but there's nothing that says we can't have a better marriage, right? So if we have a good marriage, now let's focus on making it a better marriage. So I wrote down five things in closing that will make our marriage better. The first one is keep God first in your life. Keep God first in your life. You want a good marriage, start with keeping God number one. Because there is a lot of security for the wife and for the husband when we see the spouse reading the Bible and praying and sending us little notes of encouragement. And it's, it's wonderful. Keep God first in your marriage. Two, and I eliminated one of them. Maybe this is a sixth one. I said, ask your wife what's special for her and then do it. Well, ladies, they're like, I just told you that's not so special. <laughs> you know? uh, that's not the way she said it. But, you know, when you, when you say, well, you know, buy me some flowers someday, and then the next day you show up with flowers, does that mean the same thing as if you thought, I'm going to bring my wife flowers, or I'm going to plan her a date, and then I surprise her, it means a lot more. So second one I have, do something special for your wife that you've come up with all by yourself. Uh, <laughs> These are challenges for me, and it can go both ways. Do something special for your husband that you've come up with yourself. My wife's awesome at doing that, so I, I more think. Um, one example I was thinking of, I was at a minister's meeting, and I was not looking forward to coming home and doing chickens that evening because I had 900 trays to pick up or something. I had There's a lot of work to do in the barn that night, and I get home, and here the children and my wife had picked up all the trays and done the chickens for me. Well, that felt like love, right? That, that I knew that my wife loved me. Okay, third thing, show affection. Don't be afraid to show some affection. Tell your spouse you love them, and you're now allowed to hug and kiss them. Go for it. You know, the, uh, I wasn't, yeah, it's, it's your privilege. Um, I know a lot of dating couples that would like to hug and kiss each other. So now that you're allowed to, go ahead and do it. First uh, Corinthians 7, 3, it says, Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband, and likewise also, also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one another, except it be for consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incon... I never can say that word right. Incontentency. Yeah. What Glenn said. Don't make it so your partner has to look for affection or words of affirmation from someone else. It should come from you. And I'll say this, it's no excuse if you're looking for it somewhere else and you're a married man. You, we're to look for affection and love at home. Okay, fourth, be open and honest. Don't 
keep secrets from your spouse. And when I say honest, I'm not talking painfully honest. You know, let, I'll give you an example of what I mean. My, my wife could say, well, honey, um, did you drink out of the toilet last night? Your breath smells awful. <laughs> yeah, that, that doesn't feel like love. But she could do like, honey, would you like a breath mint? You know, it's, it's saying the same thing. It's still being honest, but it doesn't hurt quite as bad. So sometimes as we become familiar with each other, the, the, the painful honest comes in there. And we don't, we don't think, well, how did that feel? Um, be honest, but you don't have to be painfully honest. The Bible says, speak the truth in love. Trust affects love, and love affects trust. Colossians 3.9, it says, Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in the knowledge after the image of him that created him. You will not have a good friendship if you are not honest. Number five, stay committed. Even a good marriage has bumps and bruises along the way. That doesn't mean that there are times when you have to weather the storm, but the storm should be temporary. The storm shouldn't continue. Uh, weather it, get over it. I never understood this verse. Colossians 3.19, it says, Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. I, haven't, I was like, why would I be bitter against my wife? But there might be times that that's possible. <laughs> you know, when you're first married, uh, what does that verse even mean? But the longer you're married, there might be times where you're a little bit bitter against them and don't let it last. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Well, that's all that I had this morning. There's much more on our marriages that um, we could talk about. You know, as we're coming up in the holiday uh, season, I was thinking about our marriage vows, and I was wondering what all, you know, she promised to do. Like, she loved through thick and thin, but what about the reverse? You know, if you've gone from thin to a little thicker, is she still liable <laughs> to love? But um, we have a, a perfect example in the Bible of Christ's perfect love for us. And we need to extend that love to our wives. And when we do it properly, when we have love for our wife, at the authority submission dynamic isn't a problem. It's when love is lost and we want to maintain that, uh, whatever it is, it doesn't work. There has to be love there for that to work out. So may our marriages be a reflection of Christ in the church. God bless you.